Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor here at Gestalt IT. Joining me from the Chicagoland area, from what I understand, is the one, the only, the CTO advisor himself, Keith Townsend. Keith, thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, letting me wear my hat. It's a bad hair day, so... <laughs> I can uh, I can understand that happens uh, once uh, as a as someone who uh, is in the same division. It's also a uh, bad hat day uh, for you, but that's just a matter of taste. Uh, first up here, we're going to do a little segment we like to call news or nah. This is where we might have too many news stories to cover in depth, but I want to get Keith's take on some of the news of the week. First up here, we had some news from ARM, uh, my favorite non x86 chip architecture maker, whatever. Uh, ARM announced two new processors, the Cortex M55 for embedded devices and the Ethos U55 Micro Neural Processing Unit, or NPU. The M55 is the first to use ARM's new Helium architecture and promises things like faster vector calculations and the ability to run machine learning models 15 times faster than previous Cortex-M CPUs. Kind of cool. But adding on top of that is the Ethos U55 coprocessor designed to work with Cortex-M, which is kind of their mid-range low-power processors. Uh, and this promises in combination to offer 480 times uh, the ML workload capability of, I guess, not having that using a previous generation Cortex-M. ARM sees this as uh, providing embedded edge devices uh, with ML capabilities without needing to kind of go back to the cloud. So basically the promise of edge computing, embedded edge ML on the cheap, Keith, news or not? This is actually news. Uh, this is a pretty good one. Store stack from you from old school EMC. By 2020, EMC predicted that we'd have 44 zettabytes of data worldwide. I'm sure that estimate was probably low based on just a rapid expansion of uh, data. So obviously all of that data isn't in the cloud. It's not even in our data centers. So if we're going to get you know, the data is the new oil thing. Uh, somehow we need to process all of that data. And we can't, one, we can't. So solutions like this, we, we have to get data into the processor faster and the processor has to process that data faster. So this is news. Next up here, Nutanix rolled out a number of updates to its Kubernetes management platform, Carbon, spelled with a K because I guess that's their thing. Users can now perform one-click upgrades without having to redeploy a cluster. Admins can use Active Directory to give read-only access to users. And Nutanix now provides a bundle of containers that have all the code needed to deploy and manage Kubernetes, uh, Kubernetes clusters in air-gapped deployments, so completely cut off from the network for ultra-secure environments. Are any of these updates news or a bundle of nah, Keith? It's a bundle of nah. I went to the website. I couldn't even find this update on the website. So it's a bundle of nah. I, I do like the air. I'm a sucker for anything air gapped. I think it's because of all those uh, 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 security stories out of Ben Gurion University. I just love I, I, I'm a fan of air gaps. What can I say? Uh, next up here in merger news, uh, usually we have a couple merger stories on the rundown. I think only one this week. In fact, I know there's only one. A U.S. district judge has ruled in favor of Sprint's $26 billion deal to merge with T-Mobile and now only needs the California Public Utilities Commission approval to go forward. Attorneys general from dozens of states brought or sought to block the deal, arguing that combining the two carriers would stifle competition and create higher prices for consumers. The company said the merger would help them compete against AT&T and Verizon and build a nationwide 5G network more quickly. The merger we all knew was going to happen is definitely happening unless, I guess, the uh, CPU uh, decides to try and really play hardball. Uh, news or not here, Keith? This is actually news. Uh, 
I, I hate that uh, this merger is going through, but I also understand the drivers behind it. Sprint and T-Mobile can't compete with Verizon and AT&T uh, in their current um, uh, uh, at their current sizes. So this is this is news. Uh, it needed to happen for the individual companies, but for us consumers, I think we're going to uh, end up paying the price of it. Yeah, down the line. Um, and again, we've we've kind of covered this a number of times in the rundown. That's why we're not going into a deeper discussion. I don't know. I don't think there's a ton of enterprise impact other than, I guess, fast. If, if theoretically this leads to faster 5G deployment, regardless of cost, um, you know, uh, theoretically has impacts down the line uh, that way as well. Uh, finally, here on News or Not, Apple has joined the Fast Identity Online or FIDO Alliance, which seeks to develop and promote stronger authentication standards than passwords. Other members include little companies like Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, and Samsung with support for the Alliance's universal second factor open standard. Chrome, Firefox, Edge, Opera browsers, all native to the support uh, uh, that Universal 2-factor, and in iOS 13.3, Safari also supports FIDO2 compliant physical security keys like the YubiKey. Keith, uh, Second Factor, uh, or uh, Apple joining a Second Factor Alliance, news or not? I'm going to go nine until I can take my government PIF card and put it inside of an iPhone. So. <laughs> So it'll never be. <laughs> yeah, it'll never be. Yeah, this this is this is going to be a mess for a long, long time. All right. Uh, first up here in our discussion, speaking of messes uh, for a long, long time. Hey, ransomware. It's out there. Uh, we all know it. It's kind of came of age, I guess, uh, maybe two, three years ago uh, with a lot of uh, uh, the uh, Ryuk, right? Ransomware, that kind of and uh, all, all that news that was coming out a couple of years ago, but still a major issue for organizations. I feel like, though, we're approaching a place where ransomware mitigation is fairly well understood, even if implementation is another detail. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, if you're prepared, you're not going to go down for maybe hours or days at a time. We see that all the time in the news, but it has maybe a less apocalyptic feel than we were hearing a few years ago. To date, most ransomware isn't about breaching a system, but rather about making it unavailable by encrypting content, just as kind of a background there. However, recent attacks, uh, and this was covered by RS Technica, targeted by the Maze and Subin. Uh, Sobin Nokibi uh, ransomware rings have been using weaknesses in internet-facing infrastructure to obtain data prior to typical ransomware encryption, effectively blackmailing organizations to pay up even if they can't recover from the attack. So essentially just doing a more typical breach of their systems and then doing the ransomware anyway. Keith, ransomware going from a malicious product to a malicious feature in a larger breach these kind of attacks are uh, arguably harder to pull off, but theoretically more effective. How can organizations respond to this new kind of threat? So obviously that it's always been a race uh, to beat uh, bad actors. They're, they're going to improve their tools. They're going to improve their business processes. There's a lot of money in there uh, and there's a lot of uh, insurance to cover it. However, uh, what enterprises should be, looking at is exfiltration systems and alerts. So understanding when data is being accessed that shouldn't be accessed and, and going to destinations they shouldn't, data shouldn't be going to. This is stuff that we've been preaching probably for the last 10 years, ever since, even ever since the government Snowden uh, challenges, this is something that we should be looking at no matter the size of your org. 
I mean, the, the question I have, though, is it seemed like it took a while to kind of figure out whose responsibility ransomware was right from detection to mitigation. And, and I think we've we've kind of hit upon a, a, a rhythm for that in terms of like of how to handle data management, you know, like looking at reads and looking at, you know, like accessing huge blocks of file systems and stuff like that as a sign of ransomware. But now I feel like mitigating this kind of attack uh, or this kind of approach to a ransomware attack requires even more sophisticated kind of coordination between different teams within an organization. I mean, do you, do you see this as taking like our organizations right now? And I, I know that's like a huge, broad sweeping statement, but are many organizations prepared to deal with this kind of sophisticated two prong attack? No, because it's a hard problem. Uh, we're talking about data loss protection, essentially, mm-hmm. which is a discipline that uh, if you're keeping personally identifying identifiable information, PII, or sensitive data in general, you you should have always been worried about the first problem, which is people accessing that data and sending that data where they shouldn't be accessing and sending that data. So that's a problem that would mitigate this problem to begin with. If I have deal, proper DLP controls and I can alert to when a process is access, accessing data, so not even, you know, encrypting the data, it's asking accessing data or sending data to a internet source that it shouldn't be sending data to, you know, that's kind of a problem number one. That's a basic DLP security CISO level problem that even sends this new connect connection with uh, ransomware. Users should be, organizations should be protecting against already. Yeah, it, it's, it. It's I, I'm, what I'm going to be interested in is seeing, you know, as someone who was was following the news and following IT, seeing the innovation actually that came out of, you know, kind of the, the rise of ransomware, seeing I mean, if this leads to more coordinated approaches to data management, data security, that kind of stuff. I mean, in the end, I actually think that could be good, even though there's going to be a lot of pain, uh, I guess, to go along with that to get to that point. Uh, you know what? Th- this will help companies be able to and we'll have a story on GDPR a little bit later, but, yeah. you know, help companies be able to better answer gpr challenges etc etc that's that's my uh galaxy brain uh uh rationale for the rise of ransomware it was actually started by europe to get better gdpr compliance uh that's gonna be my take going <laughs> uh next up here an interesting story from a or this came from a blog post by alex danko uh formerly of social capital essentially looking at the future of startup funding in the age of SaaS companies um he sets out that SaaS startups currently are kind of locked into a one-size-fits-all vc funding model based on equity, right? So the VC firms own a part of the company as part of their investment, leading to a bubble mentality that promotes ambiguity between founders and investors and tolerates an inherently high failure rate. He kind of questions uh, the logic of, well, VCs have to operate a certain way because uh, there are so many startups that fail. And he questions, well, is, is that is that kind of equity mentality causing all of those failure rates? I think it's an interesting question. The predictable revenue model of a SaaS startup requires more cash than the perpetual license model to reach profitability. Uh, he was estimating around $100 million for a SaaS startup uh, to reach profitability versus 20 to $30 million uh, for more perpetual uh, uh, license kind of startup. I would need to dig into his figures. I can't verify those, but 
interesting estimates. Uh, Alex sees the revenue stability of SaaS opening the doors to other financing models, specifically taking companies taking on debt rather than equity and turning recurring revenue into a security. And to quote him, he proposes, you raise your initial equity to establish your product, go to market, and first cohort of users, which is kind of his key in this whole arrangement. Uh, once you understand the first cohort of users really well, you securitize the first whatever percentage of the cash flows they generate, get them off your balance sheet, and then use that money to create your next cohort of users. And it's really all about, you know, kind of generating those users. So Keith, does debt versus equity change the incentives for startups? So we can take a look at uh, a real world experiment. Nutanix is going through this very thing. You know, they're going from uh, perpetual licensing to uh, uh, subscription based licensing relatively early in their journey as a publicly traded company. And they're going through some pains to make that transition. The simple matter, uh, the simple fact is that markets like big numbers. And Nutanix was able to get big numbers with the perpetual licenses tied to the uh, hardware sales and switching to the subscription model forces it to do things that are pretty interesting in the short term being a equity driven entity. They are a publicly traded company. They uh, provide equity to get operating cash. So I think they are the real world experiment in that. So. I think this is a hard to read article. I think a lot of, yeah, a lot of, yeah, again, it got into a lot of financial technicalities, but I think from a practical perspective, as you're considering whether or not to start a company like I did, or you're considering to go to a startup versus a well-established company and there's an equity portion of it. And that equity portion of it is part of the incentive. You, have to ask yourself if we're going to a debt model uh, in which we're looking to uh, use what they called basically operating funds or operational debt to continue to grow the business. How does that impact your your equity, et cetera, et cetera? I'm not smart enough to answer those questions, but I am smart enough to know that when you buck the existing model, you end up with challenges that like what Nutanix has, which is how do how how do they continue to keep their shareholders happy while they go to this subscription model, which I think is a better model. But, you know, you don't get the you don't get the, the big numbers until a couple of years into the experiment. Yeah, and we've experienced that uh, with Gestalt Eddy with company briefings. I mean, anytime we're talking to a company that's outside uh, the valley or maybe some of the big startup scenes around the world, you know, these are these are companies that we'll talk to them. It'll be the first time I'm hearing about them, and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, we've been around for ten years. We just <laughs> didn't take VC funding, and we're taking it. We're taking this, you know, more slower, methodical approach." And I do think if you know, that's a really good point when, it, especially when it comes to you know, maybe gathering talent down the road. If if you know. Uh, Changing the incentives and being a more debt-heavy organization, uh, it, it makes it harder to compete for talent even uh, for some of those companies. So that's something I hadn't even thought of, uh, Keith. That's a really great point. But the other thing that Alex points out is that in virtually any other business, this equity model is kind of the ex- is more the exception than the rule. Whereas if you want to grow your business, generally it's well, let's load up on debt. Let's you know let's use that to finance for you know and fast track further growth. Um, so, you know, this, this may be a sign that, you know, the Silicon Valley scene in the history of business is still, uh, relatively recent. Maybe this is just a sign of things. Uh, kind yeah. Of- it's just that, the uh, Silicon Valley scale is hard to do. You know, could yeah. Facebook have taken on enough debt 
and service that debt to become Facebook. Yeah, and and that's the thing. And I think in the in the enterprise, if you can, I mean, again, it, it comes down to a narrative problem almost, right? Where it's like you're thinking about the solution. Hey, they look great on paper. I don't know. Like look at them on Crunchbase. You know, they're they're barely. You know, like the weird the weird mentality that that people get into when it comes to evaluating companies. A lot of it is around narrative. Uh, and I think that gets into our uh, the next story we're going to be talking about here, which is that uh, Business Insider reported that IBM would deploy Slack across its 350,000 worldwide employees. This doesn't come out of nowhere, of course. Slack has been used by IBM since 2014 for smaller teams, began an official partnership with the company in 2016, and is already Slack's largest customer in 2019. So for some context there. The narrative around Slack has been somewhat somber since their IPO last year, with Microsoft Teams posting massive uh, uh, daily active user growth compared to Slack. I think the last count was 20 million daily actives versus 12 for Slack. Does this prove that Slack can scale to even the largest organizations, or is Microsoft still going to dominate that Fortune 500 space? Yeah, I think Microsoft is still going to dominate the Fortune 500 space. I went to Microsoft Ignite uh, this past year, and uh Teams, the team sessions were the most in-demand sessions. I just couldn't, out of curiosity, walk up and join a team session. So whether Teams is being forced down these admin throats or executives actually want to use it, I don't. I, I don't think that's relevant. It's just that it is the thing that enterprises are using. Slack is interesting. I hate to be in a three hundred fifty thousand user Slack, but <laughs> channel, but. You know, either way, I, I, the Microsoft uh, is in pretty good shape. Yeah, and all surveys have kind of pointed to that. Where, in terms of like, you know, uh, C, you know, talking to CTOs and stuff like that, who's looking at uh, which product? It seems like, uh, yeah, that Fortune 100, Fortune 500 space, uh, Microsoft has really. I mean, it's Microsoft, right? If it's kind of you know, you never get fired for uh, for choosing Microsoft. Still, I don't think this is set to become like one. I, I think there's definitely room for both of these products to exist. Slack certainly. Um, has a has a really tempting onboarding session, you know, as opposed to getting that Office 365 subscription and getting that bundled in there. Uh, you know, Slack has that entire free tier. I know Microsoft also has a free tier of Teams, but, you know, I, I think there's room enough for both of these companies, although it will be interesting. Again, if, if Microsoft is posting 30 million daily actives in a year or two and Slack is, you know, growing much slower, uh, you know, uh, what the what the narrative around the company will be, especially not their public. Yep. Except- Next up here, in the wake of GDPR and CCPA, India unveiled its proposed India Data Protection Act of 2019 last year, as the name would imply. It features similarities to the other two laws, including the right to be forgotten, and would establish robust data sovereignty requirements. Uh, This is kind of one of the big differentiators when this first came out, uh, really requiring uh, companies to keep data in the country, although they already have some laws uh, in that regard as well. But it would also criminalize re-identification of user data without user consent, which could cause major problems for security researchers. It's a common industry practice for companies to de-identify user information to be in compliance with these types of laws, with independent security teams auditing it to check if it can be re-identified. So using something like, you know, posting train routes and, and associated user information was an example that they used um, in uh, in the piece I was referencing here. You can find in our show notes. Um, and, and being able to, with the anonymized data, maybe be able to reconstruct the possibility of identity w- with some of those uh, data sets and stuff like that. The problem is that these security companies often are doing these kind of audits without disclosing specific tests to the companies that are being done at this time, which could cause them to run afoul of this law. Keith, this is is this kind of an unintended consequence? You know, is this a um, uh, setting up so that 
only the the bad guys essentially will be doing this kind of re-identification if we don't allow, you know, the white hats to be doing this. Or maybe it's something that the security uh, industry can't play as fast and loose in India. Yeah, so it's an interesting cultural question uh, because, you know, the article mentioned uh, something similar happened in Australia with uh, transit cards. Yeah. Security researchers were able to uh, reestablish identification using that anon- anonymized data. I think we want white hats to be able to help protect us. The, the more people that can look at this data and find the uh, holes in the regulations, the better the regulations become and the better we're protected. Uh, so I would like to say it's an unintended consequence, but just like GDPR, when it first came out, I really didn't understand it from a U.S. centric perspective. I'm like, OK, this is, you know, I'm trading data for for services. This is kind of a given, mm-hmm. but we're starting to see the benefits of GDPR even here in the U.S. Uh, so there's an argument to be made culturally that we may should, you know, tend a little bit more towards the Europeans and the Indians. Uh, when it comes to uh, data protection. However, uh, this might be a little bit too onerous. We, we need to be able to let white hats do the things that white hats do in our benefit. Yeah, I, I think there is a, a fine balance because, I mean, part of the, the like the reason you become a white hat is because like you like to like see how things break and, and find the boundaries, but you also want to be uh, you know, th- there is a you, you want to have a positive contribution to that, right? You're not just doing it for the lulls or something like that. You're you know, you're one, you're doing it for a career and, and two, you're doing it, I guess, to help improve systems overall. Um, and, and I don't want to, you know, I, inherently, I, I find it problematic to put too much rules and regulations on that. That being said, maybe this will point in a direction to for, for companies that are employing these independent security consultants, independent security firms. Uh, maybe just require uh, more visibility into what they're planning on doing with this de-identified data going forward. Maybe that's a way to kind of be in compliance with these laws. And also, this is a proposal. So if they're getting feedback that, you know, this could cause major problems and have unintended consequences, hopefully, I would think uh, that would impact what the actual law looks like. So we will see coming down the line. It seems like, though, there's a lot of momentum around that law. uh, And we'll uh, maybe see something on the books in 2020 in India. We will see. Uh, Next up here, Google announced that starting with Chrome 82, the browser will start warning users before mixed content downloads or non-HTTPS downloads started on secure pages. This would roll out initially to executable files, uh, which we blocked in Chrome 83, then moving on to archive type files, PDFs, Word docs, uh, and uh, excuse me, archive files, PDFs, and Word docs kind of in the next version of Chrome, and then image files uh, receiving it uh, in the next version after that. Basically by Chrome 86, all mixed content downloads will be blocked after this kind of slow rollout with mobile versions being delayed one version, I guess, to give them a little more time to be compliant or something, or to give more warning to users probably as well. Keith, I'm I'm curious here. This seems like a very opinionated move and a number of opinionated moves that Google has made in the development of Chrome in terms of, you know, blocking certain types of ads, blocking uh, user agent strings, now blocking these mixed downloads. At what point does this kind of opinionated uh, development or opinionated browser development become a hindrance maybe to enterprise users down the line. You know, I think Chrome is already a uh, opinionated platform and doesn't give administrators enough flexibility. I think this is a great example of it. There are things that I want to happen in the browser. If I have a uh, application catalog uh, and users can go and self-service and get applications installed 
uh, by their uh, on their own. And it has this type of mixed use download in order to install an application. This is a type of activity that I want to happen in the enterprise. It's a trusted set of uh, processes. So I want that to happen. So if the if Google Chrome isn't giving administrators the ability to flip the switch on these security features, then it is too opinionated for the enterprise for in for like actual consumers. This is great most consumers should not be downloading executables from the web if you don't know what you're doing then you shouldn't be downloading executables or these kind of mixed downloads where it has in uh, this is how malware happens so uh, yes the google again doesn't always understand the enterprise and I think this is an example if they don't give the controls of not understanding enterprise and enterprise use cases. Yeah, I, I, I imagine when that version 86 comes out that just blocks everything, there's just going to be so many weird legacy workflows that no one's touched in 15 years or something like that. There's, you know, oh, I just used to click on this and it would download this report, you know, over to me. Now, that's not saying that that justifies having a non-secure, you know, download source or something like that from a secure page or something like that. I'm just saying, yeah, there, there's a lot of non on effects and yeah, not having uh, the one, the controls and two, the visibility into, you know, the decisions that Chrome is making as a browser, you know, maybe down the line, although I guess what's the remediation for that? I mean, everything's kind of based on Chromium to or not everything, but a lot of browsers now are based on Chromium. So I wonder, uh, you know, uh, if if people just have to bow to the will of uh, of this uh, of this kind of implementation, I guess you could download the source code and Spin up your own uh, version of Chromium, I guess. That could that could be an option out there. Uh, if you're that talented, you have that type of skill set, and you want to maintain software, sure. <laughs> I just hear Keith's teeth, teeth, teeth grinding. <laughs> yes, I, I just, I, I, you uh, you almost triggered the rage machine. Oh, Speaking Tom, not happy. Speaking oh. of the rage machine, uh, we're going to talk about Oracle to finish out the show. Oracle launched Oracle Cloud Infrastructure Data Science Service, a catchy name for a native OCI service that lets data scientists collaborate on development, deployment, and maintenance of machine learning models. It includes a collaborative space for data exploration, a Python-based accelerated data science toolkit with automation and explainability features, which I actually think is super interesting, a model catalog through which data scientists can make models available to other users, and a loose coupling model, which allows you to deploy a new of uh, versions of your machine learning model uh, without really disrupting your app uh, or your, your services. Uh, GCP, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Google Cloud is a prominent uh, cloud option for data scientists. And AWS at reInvent announced the expansion of its SageMaker services for better collaboration amongst data scientists. Is this uh, maybe another player in the data, the larger cloud data science game? Or is this kind of niche play helpful for Oracle to grow their cloud ambitions, Keith? So what? Oracle knows data, surprisingly. Uh, so anytime Oracle comes out with a data product, we we have to take it serious. Oracle's problem is just scale from a cloud provider's perspective. I, I've talked to their OCI uh, team. The folks on the ground creating stuff like this, super, super bright customers are not, uh, would not be harmed by listening to the fresh perspective on cloud uh this an, is an example of something that you definitely want to go and talk to oracle about if not just to push your other cloud providers to offer similar services or third parties etc oracle's biggest problem is oracle executives uh the if 
if they just let some of these bright people do what they do and, and make it available to the masses, Oracle would be in a much, much different position in the cloud. Yeah, and if you haven't checked out any of the uh, that Oracle Cloud infrastructure, um, product solutions, that kind of stuff, uh, they've done a couple of presentations now that have really opened some eyes, I think, at Tech Field Day. So if you head over to techfieldday.com, uh, search for Oracle, you'll find some really uh, interesting stuff on OCI there. I know, like for me, uh, it was some very interesting stuff, what they're doing with bare metal cloud performance, that kind of stuff. Uh, what they're also, uh, Ravello, right, is they own now. Um, and so they're doing some really interesting stuff there. So check out those videos if you'd like some more information. But Keith... Thank you so much for being on the Gestalt IT Rundown. This has been a blast. Where can people find more of your great stuff if they're so inclined? If you uh, want to interact with me, you can find me on Twitter at CTO Advisor. And the website is thectoadvisor.com where you can find my musings. Excellent. And uh, you're on uh, you're on the YouTubes, right, uh, Keith, too? You're, you're putting out YouTube. I am on the YouTubes. If you either search for CTO Advisor or just uh, YouTube for slash the CTO Advisor. And you can always head over to gestaltit.com for all sorts of IT coverage from across the enterprise. We have podcasts. We have video shows like this. Uh, we have other video content and always great articles going up every single day. So check that out as well. And if you like this show, like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll get notified when we're going live and all of that great stuff. Uh, so you can catch this live every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Keith, thanks once again for being here. Uh, really appreciate it. Great discussion. Uh, and until the next time we meet, remember, everybody, have a super sparkly day.